Welcome to this edition of the Million Dollar Mastermind Podcast. This is where we pick the brains of high achievers from all walks of life and get their hard-earned, real-world insights on winning. I'm your host, Larry Wydell. As you move forward in these things, what do you like to have as a good relationship in a uh, family office? When you start a relationship with one, what is your picture of this is going to work out great and here's the picture? The great question. The best compliment I ever got in a speech, when I speak a lot throughout the world about family offices and the best compliment I got didn't even seem like a compliment at the time. Somebody just came up to me and said that was really authentic. And that, that was what he said. And I thought about it for a while. I didn't even take it as a compliment, but then I really thought about it for a while and it really was because when I spoke, I'm not the smartest guy in the room. I'm not the richest guy in the room. I'm not, I try to surround myself with people that are smarter than me. I try to surround myself with people and learn from them. So I think that for me, the most important part of life is not just business, it's relationships. It's your relationship with your family, which is I think the most important, relationship with your friends, relationship with your community, relationship with your business. So for me, the relationships that I have nurtured over the 30 years of my career, they are truly authentic. And I don't make money in everything I do, but the alignment of interest is there. So I think there's a level of trust that we have that family offices have with me. And again, part of the reason family offices were created, it's not that all of a sudden these people who sold Beanie Babies wanted to manage money because that's not really what they wanted to do. They right. just they stopped trusting Wall Street. So if you think about it, 68% of the family offices started since 2000 and half started since the crash. And what happened during the crash? You know, I used to run a hedge fund, so I could put up gates. Gates are basically, you know, I can, you can't sell. Well, right. if you're a widget manufacturer in Wichita, you know what gates are. And I think a lot of people felt taken advantage of. And I do agree that in many instances, there is an inherent conflict of interest on Wall Street. I mean, I remember when I was first started at, at Drexel, I graduated from Northwestern and I called my dad one time and to ask him a question, you could either have a buy, hold or sell for a company. That's how the investment bankers would rate them. And I said to my dad, I said, it's interesting because they've got a lot of buys and some holds, but they don't have any sells like that. I don't get it. And he's kind of smirked. He said, you call me when you figure it out. And about six months later, I figured it out. And what it was is these are investment banking clients. So they're not going to put a sell on an investment banking client where they make their money. So that to me is an inherent conflict of interest. Another conflict of interest is a lot of these firms, a lot of the wirehouses, they're not even fiduciaries. I mean, they're not, which is really head scratching. And that's why RIAs were created because they are fiduciaries. So I think a lot of this with family offices, the, the growth in family offices, a lot of it really comes back to the lowest common denominator is trust. And so you go out, you graduate from college, you get your graduate degree, What's your entry into this world? Did you have a, were you just looking for a job or did you have a hard target in mind where you wanted to go? Well, look, I think a lot of success is surrounding yourself with the right people, right? So Northwestern was a very good school and we had very good companies who came to interview at the school. At the time, Drexel Burnham was like Goldman Sachs and steroids. I mean, it was the most profitable firm on Wall Street by far. That's where Milken created junk bonds and it was a machine. But I came in, so I got a job at Drexel, which was fantastic. 
but I'm there two years later when Fred Joseph is, I'm 24, I think at the time, and Fred Joseph, the CEO, says we're going bankrupt. And I'm watching all these men in their 60s and 70s and 80s openly cry. And that didn't happen in the 80s. Many of them lost all of their money. So for me, the takeaway for me, and I don't consider myself an entrepreneur, even though I did start my own company, the takeaway for me was that I would never be loyal to a company ever, but I would always be loyal to people. And I learned that lesson from Drexel because I said, if this could happen to Drexel, this can happen to Goldman, this can happen to any firm but I would always be loyal to people. And that's sort of an adage that I've had as I've grown my business, that I'm very loyal and trusting of people, but not of a company. A company is just a bunch of shareholders or X, Y, Z. It means nothing to me. Now, when your first two years there before the uh, bust, did you, thinking back, were there signs or what was it like in there? I mean, was there an arrogance? Was there, what was it like that led <laughs> up to that? Arrogance is an understanding. Look, it was arrogance, but it was also, it was arrogance, but it was like, th these would, these literally were, many of these people were the smartest guys in the room. I mean, the, these, the talent level at Drexel was just phenomenal. So I was on adrenaline just because I'm working, I love working around really, really smart people and being challenged. These were brilliant people. And if you look at what came out of Drexel, Blackstone and you know all these firms that came out that they're a result of Drexel, it's still a tight community. So it was really an anomaly. I was just happened to be there. <laughs> you know, I my goal was to be there for hopefully 50 years and hopefully run one of the divisions one day. But two years later, the company imploded. So I just think that there was some sort of it's like I'm a big basketball fan. When Jordan played and they had the championship seasons, there was just an aura about them, about the Bulls. And I think there was that feeling at Drexel, which was really neat to be a part of. I certainly didn't earn it, but I was part of it only because I worked there and I, I could see it. I could sense it. Yeah. And the thing is, that does elevate your level of play if you're on a championship team, even if you, you don't have confidence that you could be the champion, you're, you know, or Michael Jordan yourself. If you're Steve Kerr on that team, he's going to elevate your level of play. Now you go to Drexel. And what did you immediately notice about the people there, about their style, their energy, and you saw yourself adopting and adapting and maybe traits or energy or approaches that stay with you till today? One, these are really, really smart people. Two, these are really, really driven people. And there was also, a, I mean, there's competitiveness in anything, but there is a team concept, a Drexel, like we win as a team. So I think those three qualities, how smart people were, how hard they worked, and sort of like as a, playing as a team would probably be the three answers for me. Now, are, and what where it fell apart, could, did they have, you know, I'm sure there's been some looking back over the shoulders, like, where did all these smart people go wrong? Well, they didn't go. I mean, look, remember, this was political. This is when Rudy Giuliani, when he was sane, you know, right. his prosecutor, he wanted this is a political thing. He wanted to get Drexel. So they got Drexel under Rico, which is the only white collar firm that's ever been indicted under Rico, which is really how you get the ma I mean, Drexel Burner was not the mafia. So a lot of it, the reason for the fall, a lot of it was political. A lot of it also is Drexel had, there were a lot of people who were jealous of the success of Drexel. Drexel was not really good about playing in the sandbox with other firms. They didn't, typically on Wall Street, if you had a deal, you'd share it with three or four other firms. Drexel didn't feel the need to share. And they had the corner on the most lucrative part of the market. So 
it was political. It was the fact that we didn't have a lot of friends. And it was a, seri- a confluence of events that ultimately culminated in, in Drexel collapsing. Now, you're moving forward from that experience. you got to get on with your life. And mm-hmm. how did you get on with your life? Well, I didn't have a choice, right? I didn't, I yeah. mean, I, I wasn't raised with in a great wealth. So I needed to work. And it's just sort of like, for a day, I'm like, yeah, this really sucks. But then I'm not going to dwell on it. I mean, it happens. So I can control what I can control. What I can't control, I try to let go. So it wasn't my fault that Drexel went bankrupt, but they did. I took a day and felt, I wouldn't even say sorry for myself, but just like, I can't believe this happened. And then the following day, I'm like, okay, what am I going to do? I have to move forward. And again, the, the goal was not for me to start a hedge fund, but that's ultimately what I ended up doing because I really wanted to start my, I did have some pretty good investment ideas and theses. And I think that the entrepreneurial bug eventually did hit, but I just got into the hedge fund. I was fortunate. It was the right place at the right time. And that's true. I think with a lot of people. And we're talking pinnacle right now. Yes. And pinnacle for just for historical note, pinnacle outperformed the, S&P index 10 out of 10 years. <laughs> so congratulations. We, yeah. Well, again, but I will tell you that in, in anybody's business, no matter what they did, there's always an element of luck to what people yeah. did. And we had tailwinds. So in the 90s, it wasn't that hard to make money if we were, and we were pretty good stock pickers. So we did, there was an element of luck to it. There was the sense of being at the right place at the right time. And we never had huge returns. We never had like 70, 80% returns, but we did beat the S&P every year. And the families were, they're already wealthy. So if market's up seven and we're up nine, they're happy with that. So we had a good run. What do you think you left Drexel with as your, you know, you always develop, you come out of school, you're there for two years, you're in a highly competitive environment with smart people. But you probably you had to make some kind of name for yourself. You had to get yourself where you had some skills you didn't have when you came in. What do you think was the best thing you left Drexel with you personally? Probably grit. I mean, grit and resilience, because there's certain things that are out of your control. And what happened with Drexel certainly was out of my control. But I saw some people just like, this is the end of the world and they just stopped working and it just impacted them. And I saw a lot of other people, most of the other people just get back on their feet right away and like, okay, this is a setback and let's go forward. And I think it's that that ability to get knocked down and get back up, which makes a huge difference for most people. So you decide to go, what was your other choice other than to open a hedge fund? <laughs> I couldn't, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I could have interviewed in other places. I probably could have gotten a job on Wall Street working, doing similar things to what I was doing at Drexel. But I was just so frustrated with the whole process of watching this incredibly lucrative firm go bankrupt that I just, I wanted to start my own company. And how do you go about doing that? You don't know any better. And you just do things and you make mistakes and you learn along the way. It wasn't that hard. I mean, it sounds like I didn't start with it. But nothing seems hard after you do it. But on the front, no, you, looking at it, it had to look like it was going to might be a little difficult. Or if, little, I really, if I really thought if I truly sat down and analyzed it and thought it through, I probably wouldn't have done it. But right. I, I wanted to do it. I, I had confidence in myself and I thought I could do it. I certainly didn't know a lot of what I was getting into. But I think that's true with a lot of entrepreneurs. You just get in there and you figure it out. And again, it just 
through time and, and by surrounding yourself with good people and finding mentors, you figure stuff out. And so the first things you have to do is you have to put the structure in place, right? You got to figure out what are we going to call it? How do we get registered? How is all of the back office going to come together? And then, we, you know, how are we going to get customers? Did you go out on your own entirely? Do you have partners? How did that go? No, I did it myself. I had some analysts who worked for me, but it was my company. And initially I just went to people that I knew and, you know, maybe they thought I was intelligent. They trusted me and they gave me a small amount of money. And then ultimately we did well and they gave me more and more and more. But it was just starting out. It was just sort of like, you know, I'm 25 years old. Like, let's, here's what I'm doing. People gave me a small amount of money to get started because they had confidence in me and we started to perform well. And then it just uh, snowballed from there. Was there a part that was harder than the rest? It's all hard. I mean, I've read a lot of studies on entrepreneur. And again, I don't consider myself an entrepreneur, even though I did have my own company. But people look at these entrepreneurs, they look at people after they're interviewed and after they've come out with a, a successful exit and they've sold their company and they've done terrific. But it's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of sleepless nights. It's a tremendous amount. To be an entrepreneur, I think more of it is in your gut can you handle stuff than it is an intellectual thing because it's a very, very hard road being that started doing it yourself, being an entrepreneur. And sometimes you wake up and you're just like, what am I doing? But then you realize that other people probably felt that way too. And then over time you develop a little bit more confidence. And uh, ultimately I think as more and more things continue to work out, you get better at realizing if something, it's a setback and it's not going to be permanent. Would the sleepless nights come from is so much work to do or from worrying about the how the investments were going to do or or what? More, yeah, more the latter. If I lost $100 myself, I wouldn't be happy, but I wouldn't. But if I lost $100 for clients, that would really bother me. Yeah. So I'm dealing with other people's money. So yeah, and I can't control, I mean, I could be really good at what I do, but if the stock market, if we're in a bear market and the stock market is down and some of the stocks that I pick went down as a result, people are losing money, I can't control that. So I think that's one of the things, but as you get a little bit older, I think you realize what you can do is you can be honest and you could try as hard as you can and you could have a thoughtful plan and that's all you can do. And you're going to be wrong sometimes and you're going to be right, hopefully more than you're wrong. But I think that just being thoughtful about things and realizing, controlling what you can control and letting go of what you can't. If the market, if in 2008, when the market crashed, that was out of my control. So I could control certain things, but I couldn't control that. Thanks for listening to the Million Dollar Mastermind. If you felt there were any valuable takeaways from this episode, please take a minute and leave us a five-star review. Your feedback is important and really helps us get the word out to a wider audience. Remember, we have a valuable webinar that is absolutely free. Register for it right now at whitealanwinning.com. Thanks for listening.